And I see that in our Monday morning debriefs, whether it's me or some of the other leaders in the organization that would say, okay, agenda point number one, I made a mistake. This is why I could have done, taken a different decision. And that is so powerful because everybody else more junior will look up and say, hold on a minute. If he can admit that, I can do that. Thank you for tuning back into Beyond Victory. We've been away um, filming some special episodes with guests such as Chris Froome, one of the world's greatest cyclists, Ross Edgley, who just swam around the entire UK in one go in like 157 days, crazy stories, uh, and even Stefano Dominicali, the current CEO at Lamborghini and ex-Ferrari Formula One team boss. These episodes will all be coming live every two weeks from now on Monday evenings. So please remember to subscribe so you don't miss any of them. And I would really super appreciate also if you leave a comment in the ratings. And don't forget also that if you want to see the video version of this, you can go check it out on my YouTube channel and subscribe there. Today, I was joined by Toto Wolf, who of course needs no introduction. I have shared incredible memories with Toto and we get on really well. Therefore, I hope you'll appreciate that this conversation really became very, very personal. And he is someone that's just really inspirational. We discussed some of these memories as well as his experiences that helped shape him into the person he is today. Also, as one of the best Formula One team bosses ever, with now five Constructors' Championship under the belt and currently on form to possibly take a sixth, which would be record-breaking in Formula One. I hope you guys can learn as much from this conversation as I did. Ladies and gentlemen, here we go. Toto Wolf. Hi Toto, thank you so much for, for taking the time. Um, how are you doing? Uh, fine, thank you for having me. It's been a long time since, actually it's not been a long time. I've been in Monaco two weeks ago, but it's nice to uh, be here in February on a warm day, um, talk with you. No, it's, we spent the morning uh, with the kids on the beach, yeah? In t-shirt, I mean, yeah, it's unbelievable. unbelievable. It's really, that's one of the qualities of being in Monaco. And how come you're here now so much then? Well, I'm here in my function as a husband. Um, as uh, you know, my wife uh, um, has become the team principal of Venturi, a Monaco-based Formula E team. And um, as life is always compromising between family life and the business, we are commuting between um, the UK, where our Formula One operations is, and um, and uh, Monaco. So I try to make the weekends for her, or at least be there a day a week, um, spend some time with the family. So it was very cool. I was watching a Formula E race. And the title at the bottom of when you when they showed you was husband of Susie Wolf, team principal of Venturi. So that was quite a cool, quite a cool caption at the bottom there. Um, anyway, I just want to say for me, it's very, very, um, it's very exciting to do this podcast. And just to be clear, also for you, the listener, this is not about Formula One today. Um, it's really about you as a as a person, because um, well, I have got to know you over the years, and, and definitely you're an extremely inspiring person. Don't worry, you don't need to thank me about this. That's fine. It's just the, the truth. I will, I will um, over the sorry. interview. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you're a very, very inspiring person. Um, and I think that's why I really hope that today we can extract some, some lessons for personal progress, also for everybody who's listening, even for myself. I think that would be uh, really, really cool. And I mean, to say the obvious, you're now one of the most successful team bosses and, and team owners that the sport has ever seen in such a short period, yeah, which is phenomenal and, and testament to, um, to your skills in that, uh, in that position. Five times champ now uh, with the possibility of extending that, obviously. Um, so that's just very, very impressive. Uh, if you're listening for the first time, please subscribe to the podcast. 
So I want to uh, hit the ground running. You are um, more than a racing boss. You are an entrepreneur at, at heart, really. And that's your, that's your, oh, so the Toto's phone has just gone. So if there's some quiet periods in this podcast, please uh, don't worry. It's Toto checking lap times because the uh, Formula One test is coming to an end and the lap, the, the iPad is right in front with, <laughs> with the live timing. So we'll give Toto the time on that. <laughs> it's just Andy Carwell, our engine boss, who takes okay. it. So it's real life. Blow up or is it okay? No, I think it's fine. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if, if it would have blown up, it would have been a call and not an yeah, SMS. Yeah, so. exactly. <laughs> Um, so I want to jump right in. Uh, we've spoken a lot about it uh, over the years and um, something I always love to hear is um, one of the, your coolest like business success stories as a teenager, like really, really young, straight away, you're such an awesome businessman. Um, so I think for the listeners, it would be cool to get an insight into just one of them. I, I remember one being the candles yeah. one. I don't know if that would be the most fun to, uh, to cover. No, first of all, I'm really happy to do this with you because I've uh, uh, looked at your podcast. I followed uh, Flavio's one. Um, uh, it was it was very funny and also very interesting for me how Flavio was running the team um, 15 years ago, obviously in a very different environment. So I think it's a great it's a great uh, channel you have created, and it's always good to to talk with you because you, as a racing driver and as a sports person, have been equally inspiring to me at the beginning. And I remember our first encounter when you just joined Williams and you. Uh, when you joined Mercedes, you were keen in to have your race engineer, Tony Ross, who was still at Williams, where I just became a shareholder. And I remember it was the DTM Christmas party, and I didn't know you, but you approached me and said, you're the guy who's just joined Williams. And I said, yes. And you said, I need my engineer. And uh, I thought... And you said, no. <laughs> in, no, I said, let me think about it. And, and I found it really... Uh, it gave me another um, clue on why certain people are successful. And it's because... They just focus and give it all. And you were keen in, in, in just having that guy and you approached me straight, straight on. And that was, that was impressive for me because you were very, still very young back then. Um, so the, the first um, business story, the one that you referred to, the candles and, and maybe it's worth saying that you and I have spent lots of time talking about business and psychology all over the years. And then it has been a good discussion, but the candle story was interesting. It is um, a story about supply and demand. And um, many years ago in Austria, um, I don't remember exactly when it was. I think it must have been in, the, in, in 1990, probably. There was a uh, political right shift in Austria. And uh, what has been organized in the city center of Vienna was a, a protest. Um, uh, it was a silent protest uh, with the topic of uh, lighting a candle. Um, and walking in the evening, it was winter, and walking with the candle and protesting against racism. And I thought that's really a nice initiative. So we went to see the, the, org the organization, said we'd like to support that by, by selling candles and, and, and uh, we would give a part of the profit to the, to the organization. And so you really thought it was nice or you just thought, let's make some money out of this? <laughs> no, I, first of all, you know, you need to, you need to be uh, behind things with passion. And I thought it, it's really nice. It's something we must do. And must support. There's going to be a there's going to be a, a few thousand people in the in the city of Vienna that evening. Um, they are not going to have any lights or candles. So I found out the, the where the only candle producer around Vienna was, and I went there and said, "I'd like to buy all the candles you have on stock." So I figured out how how can I finance buying those candles, and so I I 
presented the deal to a friend and said, let's make 50-50. We put all of our pocket money in. So we, we organized lots of cars. My mother helped me and we got a little minivan and, and we drove the candles to the, to the apartment. And on that particular day, the whole thing started and everybody got a box on the floor of candles with a few hundred candles and, um, and off we went. And, uh, the, the protest was due to start at six o'clock and until three, we, we sold a few hundred. So it was a terrible business. <laughs> Um, I was running behind the hotspots and asking um, how it was going. And I said, it's not going at all. And then the day continued. And at five o'clock, the business started to, to start a little bit. And by 5.30, when everybody, when the people started to get into the city center um, uh, to walk, it was unbelievable. We got, it was a, it was a huge wave of demand that came over us. And I and my friend, we were running around because the people said, we have so much coins and little money in our pockets. We are worried for security. You need to come. So I was running around. It was freezing cold. I was in a t-shirt and just collecting the money from the pockets and bringing it back to the apartment. It was not a lot. It was shillings, a few, few euros. And then at um, 6.30 or 6.45, we were sold out. We've had like the best businessman in the world. And it was a success. And it showed that um, if you can create demand for your for your product, um, it sells. How much money did you make? Do you remember? I don't remember. I think it was 20,000 shillings, which was a lot. It's like 1,500 euros or 2,000 euros. Yeah. But I was a, a, I was in school. And back in the day, added add a zero to that 25 years or 30 years ago. How, how old? I was 18, 17 or 18. Cool. And uh, is that a turning point for you where you think, but damn, I've got this. I know how to do this stuff better than anybody else. And, and uh, I love this. No, 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 not at all. But I remember the feeling in the apartment having that money. Uh, that was so much. I mean, it was two, three years pocket money that we, that we made in that evening. And it was, it, it was good fun too. And I realized it's a mixture of enjoying what you do, um, having a purpose because fundamentally it was about the protest. And then we gave some, um, uh, we contributed some to the organization. And uh, of course, there was, there was, there was a big profit for us. You've said high performance individuals all come from severe trauma or have been severely humiliated. And, uh, in other, and sometimes you even like to say more or less they're all psychopaths. <laughs> Because how else would they have this, um, such extreme drive? Yeah. Yeah. Um, can you take us through a little bit then in your case where you think for sure a lot of that is genetic in all of us? That's uh, clear. But where do you think in your case then this drive started? And, um, and yeah, take us through a bit about that. I have a discussion uh, uh, regularly with my wife about nature versus nurture. Uh, what's, what is born? What is, what is your genes? And, um, and what is being developed through the, through the relationship with your parents and, and learned. And I still very much believe is a combination of the two because you have a genetic predisposition. You can see with all, all our small kids today, they have certain talents. Um, and you wonder where they came from. My son kicks a ball since he was one year old, like a football. None, none of us plays football in the family, but he does that really well. You can see that there is, he has a talent for, for playing that ball. So that is certainly something that was in him. But then also how your parents help you to develop the love they give you or not love they give, they give you, um, which environment you're, you're growing up, um, the f right friends or the wrong friends or no friends. And I think the probably my 
view of things when uh, a while ago was that you in order to to be successful in your in your area whether it's as a sportsman or as a businessman or an artist um, you need to have that extra motivation and that extra energy because it comes with pain it's difficult to achieve these things and that extra energy needs to have a source and for me personally that source was um, a very difficult upbringing um, my my father got ill very early when he was 30 years old with a brain cancer and he, he managed to fight it for 10 years but eventually died when he was 40 years old and uh, my mother brought us up she was a doctor for a hospital in vienna and th there wasn't really um, any financial background and she still managed to get us going into a, my sister and i in um, a private french school in vienna because she felt that the languages were important and so i was in an environment with kids that could afford a private school, but I couldn't really. So we had situations that we were taken out of class because the school fee wasn't paid. That's humiliating. Huh? That was really humiliating. Can you imagine? I was, I think I was 12 or so, and my sister must have been nine or 10. And I, I was called to the door opened in an afternoon of the class. And, um, um, a secretary of the director came in and said, um, uh, Toto, can you please come down? And I came down to the director's office and there was my nine-year-old sister sitting at the table. And the director said to us, uh, we have a problem, unfortunately. Your school fees and paid for a long time. Whoa. And uh, please pack your bags and go home. Whoa. So I needed to um, go back to class and, and pick up my bags. The, some of you know, the, my friends in class, the stupid ones were saying, you're so lucky you can go home. But the humiliation of, of, of packing your bag because your school fees isn't paid. And then I got down, took my sister. Uh, we had to walk through a park to make it to the tram. And then the tram back home was a 45 minute tram journey to explain to a nine or 10 year old girl why she had to leave class and why we had to go, go home early. And these things sit really deep uh, in me. And this is certainly something I try to overcompensate. So a lot of that then is also is, is recognition, yeah, recognition uh, from from others, because humiliation is not getting recognition from others. Yeah, I think it was more um, my fulfilling my own expectations. I felt as a child let down in some way because you're 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 dependent on your parents. Um, one was working very hard, the other one was not there anymore. I wasn't empowered as a 10 or 11 or 12 year old to, to make my own living and to sort out my problems, but I was dependent. And the moment I grew up as a teenager, um, I felt I need to take control of my life and give myself better opportunities and, and to my family and my kids. And this is the drive. It's less the recognition, the external recognition that doesn't matter so much for me. It's, it's actually my meeting my own expectations, what I think I can achieve, realistically achieve. One thing I, I were to ask you, because you are an example that doesn't really fit into my model. Into, <laughs> I'm an, I think, I'm an outlier. No, I think you have your <laughs> my own. My mental trainer says that to me as well. I don't fit in his models. <laughs> yeah, you don't fit in my <laughs> <mental> either. coach. <laughs> I mean, you have your complexities. <laughs> and I've got the... Uh, no, so what no, are my complexities? What are your complexities? I think you push very, very hard in order to achieve your goals. Um, you know a thing or two about that. <laughs> yeah, I know a thing or two about that. And I think that's important. And um, often I hear people to say that, uh, or, or the, the general opinion is if you come from a difficult background, you have more drive. And I felt that 
The opposite could also be true that if you come from a wealthy background, from an okay background, and and you your your father was a Formula One world champion and you've been raised in Monaco, um, but you still had the power to go into karting, um, expose yourself to to the toughest opponent, and and make it into Formula One and become a become a Formula One world champion. And I think that per se is a huge achievement because you could, you could have taken it easy, like 99% of your, of your peers saying, well, I'm fine in my life, but you still choose a path that is with much more, a much more hostile environment. You still made it. So that is, that's why you're a bit, little bit of an outlier. Yeah. But here's the nature versus um, nurture. I think that in me, it's the nature that is very, very big for, for wanting to push and wanting to challenge and and get success which also is self acceptance yeah i'm i'm someone who doesn't accept himself very much and so through through challenge i can find these shorter short moments of self acceptance which is a very nice feeling so that's another reason for for pushing so hard and and for going for all these challenges so in this case i think okay yes i i grew up in a wealthy family but i think nature is powerful in this sense genetically with with me Okay. By the way, I don't see this negative at all. I think if you are, if you are a, a, a lucky and you have a lucky childhood and you're grown up in an environment where there is not a lot of pressure, that is fine. That is good, actually. But, um, yeah, it's a good example that nature was, was very strong. Nature didn't care whether you were in, uh, raised uh, in, in Monaco or in a, on a worse environment. You just pushed all the way to become the best in the world. At the same time, though, I have to say, so my father raised me with a lot of expectation. For him, the, the ideal man out there is someone who pushes for success. That's the way he lived his life. And that's also what he showed was uh, he sort of wanted me to, the path for me to go. Yeah. And, um, he would show proudness when he sees me pushing flat out. And if I'm not pushing flat out, <laughs> he was a bit indifferent. Yeah. Um, and so this is surely something as well that because I, I want my father to be proud of me. Um, and when I, when I feel that throughout my life, It's, I think it's another uh, catali catalyst for, for me to, to really in, in depth want to achieve something and, and push, I, I suppose. Yeah. But what you, I, I, you posted that video when you, when you won the world championship and it showed a scene, you and your father go-karting. There was a lot of love there. That was a, re that was a relationship that was not a father, an ice skating father that was pushing for his son to be successful in motor racing. It was, a father that was in love for his, for his son. And I remember he was saying uh, when he filled your go-kart up that this is a Formula One, this is Formula One fuel you're getting yeah. now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is extra super fine Formula One fuel and you were in your little tuk-tuk car, go-kart. Um, and it was a father that was being very proud that his son was doing that. So sometimes there is, there are things behind the scene that people don't see. It's this image of a Formula One driver and his dad, Formula One champion. But there's a reason why people are successful. No, it, well, no, you're right. So my father, my father was very wise because I think he got that balance very, very, he nailed it pretty well yeah. in, in always showing me the love, but at the same time, also subtly always reminding me that he expects me to push in life. And I think it was a, a very good balance, which, which has taken me to where I am today. And even then when I got to F1, He followed me very, very closely all the way to F1. And when I got to F1, we had an open talk and, and we both sort of came to the conclusion as well. And I think he realized it very much on his own as well, that um, it was best for him to step away. And he didn't actually come to races anymore because he saw also that it added pressure for me when he was there because I wanted to impress him. So then he stepped away and it really allowed me to make my mistakes and then set me free in a way, I think, as well. So, uh, so I think he did an amazing job in 
in finding the right balance. I think so too. It's an certainly an amazing job because if you imagine your f a father brings his son into Formula One and it's the environment he loves too. And to be there and, uh, and, and watch his son, there's nothing that you could be more proud of. And actually having the ability of stepping back and letting your son develop on his own, make his own mistakes, create his own life and his family is, is an amazing thing to be, to be able to do this. I'm not sure I would be able to do it, but, um, the analogy to a normal, um, business life would be, uh, my, my mom always said, can I visit you? Can I visit you at the race? And I said, would you visit me in my office and sit next to me while I'm at my desk? No, you wouldn't. So this is my job. So, so it is a job and you need to do your job and there is no other, um, um, office job or a factory job where your father would come and watch you handling things. So it's pretty normal on one side, but on the other side, it's the passion that, that is within us. How are you going to do it with Jack? How are you going to find that balance? Also with everything that you've learned for yourself, you, you know, that pushing with such a, such a drive is not always equal to happiness as well. How, how are you going to go about it? It's very interesting because um, the pushing doesn't function, in my opinion. My two elder children, uh, Rosie, she's, she's almost 15, and Benedict, they are 17. They never let themselves being pushed by me. Um, I was having multiple attempts in go-karting. And I remember one time he went there and I said, I'm only doing this for you. And I'm doing three laps and I'm going in and going to the play park. <laughs> And I thought strong that he says it that way. Yeah, very, very, very strong. Very strong. That's perfect. Yeah. He's I, still did, I, did, I often didn't dare to be so, uh, so honest. Yeah. He he's, has a very strong character. So he, I thought he's going to forget about the three laps and then he's going to get into it. And it was literally this baby cut took, 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 took three laps. He pulled in, got out and said, I'm going to the play park now. That's it. And, and Rosie, she's, she's a bit different. She's, she's very competitive. She's a swimmer and she's in among the top in her age group. And, um, she, she likes the competition a lot, but she has chosen swimming, which, um, Susie has done in her childhood, but not on a competitive level that, that she, she does. And with Jack, you can see it's going, it's, it's again completely different. I think he's his mother's son. He's very ambitious. Although, I mean, can you say that about a two year old? But I see an ambition that I haven't, se haven't seen, um, in many other kids. And it's all, he doesn't speak. Susie says, uh, it's, it's a bit disappointing, but we still love him a lot. <laughs> do, you, do you tell him that? Or you, we tell him, we tell him, your disappointment, you don't speak it. Yeah, we are trying not to show him the disappointment, but we are showing him to learn the words and, uh, I'm trying to learn him papi or papa, which in my view is quite trivial, but I go to only got, get the answer, mama, 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 mama. <laughs> and, uh, and, but. He kicks a football all the time and it's all about cars. He has his little toy cars and the only noise he properly does is an engine sound. Um, so I think we will be hitting the go-kart track soon, um, and, and see whether he likes it or not. And my, my conclusion is support the kids in an activity they love and like. Don't push them into something that they don't feel adequate in or, um, and then see how, how, how they go and follow them and their passion. Try to show them what's what's possible and uh, it's not only about motor racing but also try to spend some time with them give them love uh, read to them and show them a little bit of the world yeah so for for me as well with with my kids now i can see that um i always want to i, I even want to impress people with them yeah again get recognition yeah? yeah with my kids so i want them to be the first to walk i want them to be the first to cycle i want them to be the first to talk and it's horrible this competition uh, that we all we all have with even such young kids but i'm very aware of that thanks to all my work that i've done i really try and stop myself from from doing that and pushing them too much yeah which is again finding that balance 
as you say, I think it is good to encourage and to let them find their way. And if they do find something, push them a little bit into that direction, exactly. but being very, very careful. But you and I, we've seen people who are completely irrational about oh the kids. Oh my goodness. It's nuts. Um, it's nuts. The showing the photos and, 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 and pushing them. And I've personally seen, um, ambition in parents that got much beyond the ambition of the kids. But I think there is no formula because um, some kids then develop uh, in that area and suddenly they are successful and they enjoy the success and and it gives them confidence. And I think it's all about giving kids confidence. So I wasn't always right with my with my own assessment, but I think we have to be realistic. We love our kids more than anything and this is this is the that is given by nature. Um but you it's completely different with, with other people's kids. So you need to when Whilst seeing your son kicking a football, you'd like to, co to compare the two-year-old to Ronaldo, but showing the picture to others, they don't, they don't really have that same connection. You've done connection. that, so you know the reaction a lot. Yeah, I've looked at the reaction and the moment I was showing the video, I was thinking to myself, you're just a fool and stop that. <laughs> We've gone completely off course. So, uh, well, anyways, but it's, it's a good, nice conversation. But uh, let's jump forward a bit. You, you were talking about the drive. So you really had great successes with business, made, made huge sales of, and turned companies around and all that. Then comes, I, I would like to understand how on earth Did you convince Daimler, the biggest car company in the world, that you are their guy to run their team? You had you were Mr. No Name. You had no clue about anything in racing. You just had some shares in Williams. <laughs> you, you'd never managed anything remotely like a Formula One team. Um, how on earth did you manage to convince them to uh, give everything into your hands? You were skeptical back then, I remember. I was very skeptical, but you were as well of me, yeah. because I know behind the scenes before we met, you complained about my salary, saying, uh, what the hell, you can't pay this useless guy so, so no, much. No, no, I, I would, so have, never, I would useless, have never called you useless. useless. No, no, but you can't pay this guy uh, so much money. Anyways. He's the so businessman. I think uh, both ways it was probably skeptical, um, probably rightly so, I guess, as well. But can you explain a bit how on earth you got that... Uh, Yeah, I think I got there a little bit under the radar. I was, um, when I, I tried to make it as a racing driver when I was 18, 19, 20 years old, I raised some sponsorship and I com co competed in, in lots of formula, junior, junior formula championships in formula Fords, which was like formula Renault today. And, um, I did that for a few years and, and, um, realized that I don't have the background and, um, the financial background and the technical background and the sporting background. So I called it a day. And the end came in 1994 when Kahn Wendinger crashed in Monaco a week or two after Ayrton Senna's death. death my main sponsor pulled out. And um, today, a friend of mine, Peter, who said, I don't want to visit any hospitals anymore. And that meant the end of my career. How hard was that then for a young guy like you? A dream, dream suddenly went. It was brutal. But equally, I felt that it wasn't really my best expertise. I was uh, able to qualify a car on pole. I was able to run in the front, but I was, I was, I was never able to really, I, I saw, um, performances that I couldn't do in you others. You to accept that. Yeah, time, but yeah? I accepted that. I remember there was a race. He would, he wouldn't even know in a 1994 Formula Ford race in Zolder in the wet. And there was two classes, an 1800 class and a 1600 class. And I qualified the car in P2, which was very good. But young Nick Heidfeld, then 15 or 16 year old with a 1600 engine, put the car in the second or third row. And you could see that this kid was different. And that wasn't something that I spotted within myself. So when Peter said, this is the end, 
it was brutal because I loved it. But on the other side, um, I took the decision, okay, this is ending now. A new chapter is beginning. And I applied for a job in a bank and, and worked as a trainee in a, in a bank in Warsaw. And it was very hard because I wanted to be a racing driver, but I felt this is the right path now. And I forgot about racing about t- for 10 years and came back as a GT driver and I drove all kinds of GT championships and we won international races. And then I went into rally driving. I, I, um, I was a co-shareholder of a fantastic rally team, finished second in the Austrian championship, which sounds not meaningful, but it was. It was a competitive championship. And eventually uh, um, I managed to merge the two worlds, my passion for motor racing and the investment side. And um, Mr. Aufrecht, the founder of AMG, who today still is one of the owners of HWA, uh, we got to know each other and he sold me 49% of his business running DTM cars. And, and, and this is how it suddenly started. And a few years later, the opportunity came in investing in Williams and I became a minority shareholder in Williams, got on very well with, with, with Frank Williams. And we, I would say that we jointly ran the team at that time. We even won a race in 2012, um, in Barcelona with Pasta Maldonado. And I felt that, um, that I, that I understood with my little understanding as a driver, not on your level, but I, I knew what it was, what it, what it felt like in a car and the, the difficulties in a car. And on the other side, 10 or 15 years of investment business. And eventually we did okay with an um, underfinanced Williams that year. And I got a call from one of the Daimler board members, um, Wolfgang Bernhardt, who said to me, can we meet for a coffee? And I met him for a coffee and he said, can you explain to, to me? We were both from Vienna. Can you explain to me why our team is not functioning in the way it should? And I said, I can't tell you because I don't know the numbers and I don't know the, the structures. And, um, and he said, if we were to provide you with some information, would you then be able to assess that for us? Did Aufrecht tell him before that, that you were awesome? No, 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 no. nobody, nobody uh, told me. I got to know him and he asked me questions and this is how it actually kicked off. And, um, and then there was a second meeting with Dieter Zetsche. Who's, who must have been a little bit skeptical. <laughs> he was very like you. He was very skeptical. And he said to me, how is it possible that you're, little team and your little structure um, wins a race and um, and and they gave me an insight and I started to, to an- analyze um, uh, what went wrong and the major factor was that back in the days some teams complied to a resource restriction agreement that was a gentleman's agreement and there, is, there ain't no gentleman in Formula One and some teams didn't and uh, so the teams back at the time was underfinanced and and and, and has structural deficit and out of the blue they came back to me and said we have an idea we think that um as a corporate we haven't got the right structures to run a formula one team it needs to be very efficient and 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 decisions need to be made every weekend we would like you to run the team for us and i said i was i was really um um, incredibly honored by the opportunity but i said that's not really for me I'm an, I'm an entrepreneur and I need to co-own a business. And uh, uh, they said, funny that you say that. And then Bodo Uber, the CFO, came, came on board and said, funny that you say that because we actually want you to co-own the team. We just bought 40% back from Abar, the Abu Dhabi investment company, and we want you to buy those 40%, invest, have skin in the game and run the team fast. And hopefully it runs well, then please 
shine the spotlight on the Mercedes star. And if things are not running well, shield us away. Um, and I then said, shine it on you. <laughs> uh, yeah. If things are not going well, then shine it on you. And I was, that was, that was a feasible structure for me. And here I found myself as a co-shareholder. Uh, with Daimler and until today I have to pinch myself. There's um, very, very few structures out there where, where you have the opportunity and responsibility to represent such a great brand like Mercedes-Benz and on the other side do it in the way you think is right and um, the model has worked. Then um, it must have been a very, very st steep learning curve, of course, getting into Formula One. Uh, I learned to respect you very, very quickly. I think it took one uh, one conversation. <laughs> I also understand when someone is competent or not. Why was Rather, that? Why? Because, why? because you, it's obvious you're competent and you just need one conversation. I think it's uh, it's pretty quick. Because not also, not only competent, but you're not a too extreme narcissist. Um, you also have empathy and you're able to put yourself into the minds of others and understand and, and you want to learn and, and all these. And, and those are something that I resonate very much with those kind of people because I'm, I'm like that as well. And so for me, it was very, very clear quickly. And of course, just, uh, cleverness, which also comes across very quickly. I think, you know, nas narcissistic behavior and, um, ego, egomans fail eventually. They, they can be, they can go a long way, but there is going to be a moment where they really believe that they are the real deal. And you, if you aren't able to look yourself in the mirror in the evening whilst brushing your teeth and saying, I was a bit of an idiot today and ground yourself, eventually the doom day is going to come. I am 100% sure. We hear lots of success stories of people that are very driven, that have a big ego and it gets them a long way, but the ones that succeed long-term that are not a flash in the pan, they grow slowly and they are very self-aware. And I think that is a very important um, um, personality trait that you need to have today. I'm not so sure because if you look at Verstappen now, for example, yeah, he is like narcissist. Uh, you write it in, like you would write it in the dictionary, I think, because how can you not question yourself if you do six times the same mistake and on the seventh time you still do the same thing? But then it happens to work because you have so much talent and that turns it around into a huge success streak. So, there's so I'm not so convinced that you're right with that. I think a, an, an extreme narcissist, when you have the right special talent, can be a, an extremely powerful force and maybe even the most powerful. I think with, with uh, Verstappen, it's, it's, it's different because there is a part in his life that we don't see and that's the relationship to his father. And, and I think that Jos is giving his son... Um, the direct feedback. I don't think he's holding back. And um, Max's behavior is 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 self confident in a, in a way that you would even see sometimes overconfident. But you must not forget that he's very young. When he collided with Walter in Monza last year, um, it was pretty obvious that there wasn't enough space. And even if you look at commentators, I I happened to look at um, I was in my motorhome in Barcelona two days ago and I watched the replay of the Monza Grand Prix. It was on it was on Sky, and Martin Brundle, who knows everything, says that was not enough space. So it was clear. But I think there is a certain degree of um, super confidence that helps you in your in your ability to drive. But I think the older he gets, the more he matures and grows that angle he's going to get that angle under control and i think if if you think back how how you were at 19 or 20 i, I know how i was i mean i wouldn't have been able to cross the road here uh, uh, without risking an accident i think um it's a that's a that's a different story 
you need to consider the age. Yeah, but I, for example, I'm very different. I don't have that ultimate self-confidence, never had and, and never will have in that sense. But for me, that was also, it's a sensitivity, which um, I, I see if you're able to channel it properly and learn to, to channel it, it took me a long, long time, it can be a huge strength because it's the one that allows you to question yourself. It, most of the time, I think that I'm at fault and that means I question myself. That means I try and pu push to improve and learn and progress. Um, because I'm always, I don't always think, oh, I'm, I'm the man anyways. It must be the other guy's fault. That is also a character trait among the very successful that they doubt. They very much doubt in their own achievements. I'm not so sure that somebody that is very vocal about being in the right doesn't doubt in the, doesn't doubt in the background. I think without doubting, you will not come further, but it's one thing how you behave in front of a camera and in action in a car. And what your discussions are at home, um, looking at things and that the doubting is, is, is part of it, but maybe not displayed openly. What is important is to have people around you that help you to grow, that are not yes sayers, that are not people that ignite your overconfidence, but people that are critical, but in a, in a, in a caring way. And in a neutral and objective way. And this is, I think, important um, in order to grow to, to somebody that can outperform others. So an important ingredient of your success is surrounding yourself with people who, who dare to say no to you. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's, an, it's a fundamental part of uh, our team's culture that we are brutally honest with each other. Um, if I would have yes, yes sayers around me all the time, I wouldn't be, and uh, not, not being pointed at my shortcomings, which I anyway, most of them know for myself, but you know, some of the guys, I have a lot of pushback from James Allison and, uh, from Bradley on communications and they, and that is an important part, um, of gr me growing because it's annoying to have criticism and to hear that. And especially more annoying if you know that they have a point. How do you learn to accept that? Well, at the beginning, the initial reaction is to say... Because you're very explosive. You like to explode pretty quickly. I, uh, yeah, that is one <laughs> of the... It's a weakness, probably, no? It's a weakness. It's a massive weakness, and it is, has put me into trouble several times, um, <laughs> literally. I have witnessed it. <laughs> You've witnessed it. <laughs> but today, Coming my way, by the way. <laughs> no, but... Uh, yeah, back, it's, back it's then. All good, it's it's all, good. all good. I think we, good. we knew uh, about the situation. Yeah. Uh, that was, I guess, spa. The point is that today I'm trying to channel it in a better way and I have my helpers around me. Uh, Bradley, who runs our communications department, he sees when I'm, when I'm, when I'm going near the, the cliff and he, he drags me away and said, you should drink a tea now before you speak to the media. <laughs> so we do that sometimes after the races. Um, and it's important to have an environment that puts a mirror in front of you and say, it's not very good what you're doing at the moment. And I, now I have learned to embrace that. I'm still very impulsive and it's not always great, but on the, on the other side, uh, passion is important. So to have it, get it, to get it right between passion and explosiveness is a trick that I'm still on my way to learn. You also surround yourself with a wife who likes to say uh, no to you because I experienced that in a quite funny story. So I was flying with her somewhere. I think to a race. I was flying with Susie to a race and her phone rings and it's you. It's you. And you say on the phone, Oh, um, we were just, the whole team was just racing on bicycles in a peloton. Yeah. So we were all side by side in one big bunch racing on the bikes flat out and, and the guy in front crashed. So the whole team is wiped out. We've got broken arms, broken legs, broken ribs. <laughs> and Susie on the other side was like, 
Toto, no, you couldn't. How could you do that? Toto, no. <laughs> yeah. So I definitely witnessed that Susie uh, is very, very strong in her opinion. Um, But I remember in her opinion towards you. She's very strong. And before we, that, we talk about that, I remember your reaction also, because we were a bunch of people and you were with her on a promotional event. And your first question was, this was the very intense fight with Louis. Was Louis on the bike tour? <laughs> Was, was, was Lewis on the bike tour? That was, yeah, that was your question. I thought the championship was in the bag. <laughs> the in that championship moment. was in the bag if he was in the peloton. Uh, he wasn't that year. It was the year before. Uh, yeah, she's uh, she's very strong um, as a as a woman, but equally she gets the balance right because we are uh, sensitive um, doubters that need the feedback uh, from people we trust and and from our loved ones and. She gets the balance super right be between telling me how great I am and how well I've, uh, I've been doing things. I get text messages from her, uh, lovely text messages with regularly updates from, from our kids. And, and that support is, is something that I very much need. But on the other side, so she has that side as a wife and, and mother, which she sees as the two most important roles in her life. But then she's my biggest critic. And she, she, she has her own career and she will say no to me. Um, and that happens every day and it's something that I very much enjoy. And you see, we're here in Monaco. It's where she works. I'm here. So I've, I've followed her and uh, that balance in a relationship is so important that you give your, your wife, um, love and equally, um, scope to grow and fulfill her own dreams. Do you have a mental coach? Uh, loads. 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 Yeah. Mental health is still a very, very much a taboo topic. And I think all of us struggle in a certain way. If you grow be be beyond a certain pain threshold, you need to seek help and consult people. And I've always done that. Uh, when your tooth hurt, you go to a dentist. And if you're struggling mentally, um, and that can, can be on very low levels, um, heartache because you, you, you split from your girlfriend as a, as a young man or pressure in the job, not sleeping well. I've, I've always consulted people that I thought are more intelligent than me and more competent. And, um, and I still very much go to, to, to somebody that I've met 20 years ago and that helped me in, in difficult periods. And I have a, I would say an arsenal of weapons um, with, and I've taken that beyond the sheer talking to mindfulness and a management uh, coach that, that is working um, in the team as well. Um, we have deployed mindfulness meditation over the whole company. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's so awesome. Yeah, it's I don't awesome. actually remember. I, I still remember You were that. still there, but uh, now Headspace app, I think. No? Head, like with the Headspace app oh, also, yeah, yeah. but, but awesome. it helped us to overcome um, burnout-like syndromes after three, four, five years of uh, success, you will suffer from um, fatigue or from lack of motivation. And that helped. And I have take very much an interest into, in psychology. I love to speak to people who can help me to overcome my pain and my struggles and make me a, a, a better, a better, better man. I have a question for you because with sportsmen, I have... Um, seeing that there is like in a normal world mental health is somebody nobody really wants to talk but especially among professional sport people um and it starts to loosen up a little bit but you are one of the first that that when you when you won your championship you came out and you said you've used somebody you've worked with somebody and, and you you told me on the flight back from that that flight uh from singapore 
um, back to Frankfurt. Do you think that is something that professionals, racing drivers should do more and seek coaching and feedback from mental health experts? Um, before I forget, you were uh, a turning point moment I want to talk about yeah. is your, your, uh, how you were saying the eagerness to learn. Yeah, I think that's so important for success and for progressing in life. Eagerness to learn, which you also do so, so much of. Um, that's a very, very important lesson every day. Learn, learn, learn from people, from books. Um, super important and valuable, I think. Then, um, so you, you just spoke about mental coach. So I, Formula One is a macho world. Yeah. So brain doctors for losers in Formula One. Yeah. That's a pity. We're one of the last sports, I think, where it's still so taboo to have mental doctor, uh, brain, brain, whatever you call it, the psychologist. Um, Grosjean uses him. Mm -hmm. That's the only guy who publicly talks about it. I had one my whole career. Never talked about it again for that reason. And I started because my first year was so damn hard mentally because um, it's such a shock to get into that world. And it was so tough uh, with Williams because we were nowhere. And then you, you start to get criticized, not only the team, the drivers. It was really, really a shock entry uh, into F1. And so that's where I said, I gotta, there's got to be a way for me to improve mentally as yeah. well and, and become more resilient and, 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 and find ways of progress. Yeah. So this was my starting point. And it's the most uh, incredible experience ever in my life. And I can't believe you don't learn this stuff in school. Because yeah. the, the, it's an ocean of opportunities out there. Every single thing that you experience has already been experienced by a genius in the last thousand years who is able to write it down in a way for all of us to understand and for all of us to learn and use it for ourselves. It all exists out there. And, and so it's, it's incredible. So I can only encourage everybody, just as you do, um, everybody who's listening as well, to, to really look into that space and make, find your way, find your own way, read. And, and I, learned, I learned so much. I learned... Uh, We studied philosophy, yeah. So um, why are we the way we are? Um, why do we have uh, fear of failure, which is uh, a next point I wanted to cover? Why uh, why are we jealous? Why are we uh, scared? Why are all these things? And if you understand yourself, so powerful to understand why who you are. Yeah, it's incredible. I think we need to take, and it's a good opportunity that you and I talk about mental health because people out there that struggle will think. Nico Rosberg and Toto Wolf, they don't suffer from mental health. You know, Jeez. why should, geez, if they would know how we do. And I think breaking that taboo is very important. I have, it's a topic that is very close to my heart. I've even started a startup that is called InstaHelp, where rather than going on Dr. Google and asking for help or Googling anxiety or depression, you come in a professional environment and online you seek help and you get a response within two minutes in order to help people who, who, who suffer. Um, super important. And the more successful the, the people are, the more they suffer is an experience that, that, that I have made. I've, I have not thought that some of the people that I've met that I was lucky enough to meet throughout my career that you look in, you look into a facade and you think that guy is the most happiest because he's the most successful. And then you look around him and he, and, and you see how much he struggles. So success not necessarily means happiness. Huh? No, that is a very, very tough, uh, lesson. My, my mother used to tell me when, when we had the adverse circumstances that it's, uh, it's easier to cry in a Rolls Royce than in a Volkswagen Beetle. <laughs> I made the opposite realization is actually when you suffer and you have everything, you realize that having doesn't mean happiness. It's much more about purpose and passion and doing something that you actually enjoy doing with eventually also having an objective that you want to reach or target. But having everything and suffering 
you're you're being robbed of your dreams somehow. So that was a very tough lesson I had in my life. It's like such an interesting moment and it's so difficult for me to find, to keep the flow going because it's like amazing insights, I think, and, and so damn interesting. Can we just repeat your app, please? I think it's very valuable. Yeah, it's called InstaHelp um, and it's being launched in Austria, Germany, I believe Switzerland, the UK and soon France and um, instant feedback. Uh, within two minutes, you get a response uh, from a doctor and you can so the doctor will assess whether it's severe whether there's a big problem or whether you need a coaching and psychological support and that is the b2c side so we offer that to everybody out there and equally we offer the opportunity to companies to to have that tool detached from hr so the hr manager would know if somebody is in that um in the system and i think we just need to open up um open up and um, and rip down the walls the taboo walls of mental health That's cool. That's very powerful. Um, one, um, which I didn't know about you. One thing I read was that you've learned to really focus in life and get rid of uh, distractions. Um, for example, uh, on the 20, 20 hour flight back from Melbourne, you just sat there for 20 hours and did self reflection and didn't read a, didn't read a book or listen to music or a movie. Nothing. Is that, that, I didn't know that about you, but that's yeah. something that you've uh, really learned for yourself. And I did that to my, for, on my way to the world championship. It's one of my big, biggest ingredients, simplicity, focus, and, and, and really having these moments of just, um, self-reflection. I would write a diary, um, and, and because it's just so much otherwise, the intensity and to keep some balance, it's so powerful. And I brought meditation into that. Yeah. It's presence and all that. Can you talk a, a little bit about that? Yeah. Imagine everybody talks about the impact of social media on, on our, uh, uh mental health or distraction. There is no more moment that you sit for yourself or you lie for yourself and you stay out of a window and you, and you just, you just enjoy being and you, you think. Um, the moment we have a free minute, we go back on our mobile phones and we look for an email or we, we, we surf the internet or look at social media channels. Because it's immediate gratification. Yeah. But it actually, for me, it puts your brain on a standby mode. Well, it sucks, um, but. Yeah, and there is many, I guess there is a system behind it because it generates a huge commercial machine in the background. And I'm not completely immune to it. I find myself sitting in an airport and having a free moment and, and grabbing the phone, but I, it's I have the discipline now of putting it back. And what you mentioned in the flights, these are for me the most peaceful moments because I don't um, link myself, hook myself to the, to the Wi-Fi if there is one, but I'm able to to not read, not watch a movie, just eat, be there for myself, reflect on the things that, that happen, uh, that happened and that, that I think will happen. And, and, um, and I give myself thinking time. And often I'm very surprised and you sit in the airplane and you watch around this whole Formula One community and everybody stares into a screen <laughs> and watches the most stupid movies you could possibly watch. Um, and I really enjoy staring into space. I, I, I look at this, I look at the ceiling and I can do this for hours. I think that's really powerful. I didn't know that. But that, that, that discipline, that discipline, I think is very, very val valuable for all of us uh, to learn. Yeah. And to, to really push for. And But you will see a, the gratification is enormous because for me, longer term though, huh? yeah, longer it's term. not instant. Instant is no. easier to take the phone and look exactly. at an Instagram picture. Yeah. Yeah. That's why we're all addicted to that. Yeah. It's more difficult. 
um, to, to do the path of just not doing anything for a while and having self-reflection because it's also boring and, and all that. But, But longer term, so powerful. So powerful. And even in an office environment, I encourage people to put the feet on the table, literally the feet on the table and stare out into space rather than to stare into a screen and pretend to be working. I think we, we are not giving us thinking time anymore. And I, I think we need that. When you look at the old pictures, I always say that within the team, when old portraits of Churchill or the very clever men of the past, Uh, sitting in a fauteuil and, and, and looking out there thinking, when are we sitting in a chair and looking, staring out into a, into a nice environment and thinking? Nobody does that anymore. And, and I think that's super powerful. And my children are, are fed up of that story. I tell them <laughs> every minute and I say, you know, think about your life. Um, but that will be a huge differentiator in the future because we are all victims of social media giants that suck us into the system, literally, that drag us in. And I think if we can resist that, we will become more competitive in a world where everybody becomes a carrot, a vegetable. <laughs> so we will... I totally agree. No, my I kids totally would agree. say, not again, that story. <laughs> It's something I think about a lot. How can I teach that to my children? Because uh, as you say, they're so like, they don't take you serious when you no. say that. They're like, stop that rubbish. Yeah. Something that, and I think the only way is to lead by, to go by example. And one day, one day when they have their first real mental suffering because of too much social media or what, they will think about you and then it will click. And I think, I that's, think so the, too, yeah. that's the only way. But lead by example. If you as a parent, you're sitting on your phone and even if not watching social media, but reading emails, they will see that. Oh, damn. Don't, don't do that on a dinner table. My two year old sees me and doesn't comprehend if I'm not letting him watch a movie. And it's already starting. Yeah. You talk about, you talked about the, the eagerness to learn. I think this is also a very important topic to be, to, to realize that we are on a path, on a development path. We are not frozen in, 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 in what we are today and in our abilities. We are able to develop them further. Every single day is a learning opportunity. Um, learning opportunity while speaking to more intelligent people or just different people. Embrace diversity and different opinions. And this is, for me, every day is, I, I'm going out in the world with big eyes and eager to, to, to learn. It's amazing. Pro progress, so learning, is one of the most powerful things as well for happiness. Because it gives, it, it's, it, you're, you're proud of yourself, yeah? it gives you purpose. If you see that you're growing as a human being, that equals happiness. And, and the attempt to learn equals happiness, I have experienced. I think it's very, very valuable. Yeah, especially if you can, if you can kind of merge it with an objective or a target that you want to reach. And even if it is only to learn something about a certain topic, I think progression and a certain degree of pain equals growing as a, as a, as a, as a human being. Well, I mean, that, that, yeah, that's another point. It's very important to push yourself into pain because that's where you grow. If you're always avoiding, you don't grow. You But you need to, to reflect about it. Yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> Not just run against the wall. Yeah, yeah okay, yeah. Um, so what is success for you in F1, to make it more simple? Well, the, the philosophical part is achieving my own expectations and not falling short of them. And in F1... Uh, in what, what is it in F1? This is winning, isn't it? It's winning. The next it's, race. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's it. That is actually, I, we, so, it's not even winning championship. It's winning the next race. Yeah. So I think that's really that you are extreme. Yeah. In that sense. I mean, we all have that, the fear of failure. Yeah. But if you put 
if that's the that, if that's what winning is, it's winning that next race every single time. How how do you deal with that? Like the fear of failure and the pressure must be so uh, is can can only be so gigantic. And also where you are now, you're on the peak of Everest. You're probably even on the standing on the pole on the peak of Everest. Yeah, I mean, there's almost no way. There's nowhere up. It's just down. How how do you deal with that? With that that fear of failure of of some at some point going down from there, or because uh, we all have it. Yeah, we all have fear of failure in our lives. I'm just thinking that yours is is surely your position is um, at an extremity because you have billions of people watching you being at the top of Everest, uh, king of king of Formula One. How do you deal with that yourself? How do you find a way to to keep some calm in that situation and, and keep enjoying in that situation? It's a, it's a it's a very good topic because the pain of failure lasts much longer and is much more intense than the joy of winning. I know a thing about that. I know well. a thing or two about that. <laughs> and and the pressure every year the pressure has been growing with me and we see that within the team that towards the end of the season there are stages where it's not enjoyable anymore because you put yourself so much under pressure. It's not only me, it's many, many of my colleagues in the team. Um, and it's something you just need to, you just need to accept, um, and, and, and deploy all the strategies that we've talked before, uh, do mindfulness, meditation, uh, find time for yourself, um, exercise, eat well, sleep well, be disciplined, but equally have realistic Targets. I think this is the most important. Winning every race is not a realistic target, though. No, which is your target. It's not a realistic. <laughs> it, there, you need. There is no sports team in the world, and no manager or no sportsman that has won every single game or every single race or every single championship every year. I'm in the process of getting my head around <laughs> that that this is pretty normal. That also that losing is part of the part of the sport. That that even within Formula One, people cheer for the underdog. And we've been there five years and, and people would want to see somebody else being competitive. And I think for the sport, it would be great if there is more of us that fight. And for me personally, as much as I hate to, to, to lose, I have kind of embraced the notion of not having an entitlement to win. Everybody can win this year. And I take it as a new challenge, but equally, you're absolutely right. You, you, there, there might be a point where the, where the pressure is just not sustainable anymore. And I remember a conversation with John Todd, um, who I, I rate a lot. He has been uh, the most su successful team principal so far. And he told me that, um, in his last year, there was a moment in his, in his, in his career when he stood on the grid in Monza and the fear of failure was just so enormous that he decided to call it a day as team principal. That I haven't reached that that point yet. I've I've been there at, at moments, but I haven't reached the point where my pain threshold was so high that I said to myself, I need to do something else. Um, but that that moment can come. Um, but today I still enjoy the ride very much, and that could mean losing a championship. Enjoy the ride could mean losing a championship. No, if you if I I, I think, don't think so. I think if I've really <laughs> given it all. Uh, I will that's could what overcome doubting. the pain. Yeah, with in five years, <laughs> would take a while. This is one. So when we used to negotiate, yeah, um, one uh, one way to reduce your fear of failure is to make the worst case scenario look good. Yeah, yeah, and repeat that in your head. Yeah, when we used to negotiate, 
you would even tell me the worst case scenario. Yeah. So it's like you're thinking it through your head and telling it to me at the same time. So yeah, if, the, if it doesn't work with you, well, then I have to take uh, Alonso or whatever else. And then you're, and you're making that good in front of me. Yeah. So I always thought maybe you're very good at, at making the worst case scenario look good so that, so that there's no big risk for you because worst case is not too bad. That's one way of, for sportsmen to, to uh, reduce their pressure and fear of failure. Is this something that you've uh, considered or worked on or yeah. apart, apart from in negotiations? First of all, we are living in our own little bubble. There's much more important things than the next best contract. Of okay, but come on, that's easy to say, but you don't no, live that. We, we do that. We had actually an offside yes, with do, our leadership. Not in your brain. <laughs> no, I said, you know, I said there is much worse than yeah. not winning a championship. There is much more impact of a no-deal Brexit, in my opinion, than of Mercedes losing a race. Not talking a championship. Doesn't work. A race. I saw your face after losing Monaco last year, which was just one race and not a championship. So that, that doesn't work. And that was pretty bad. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> but you still need to, you know, this is work in progress with me. I eventually, I think eventually uh, I will get there and be able to accept. I think you need to plan ahead and you need to look at all scenarios, whether it's in business, you launch yourself into a project, in my opinion, only if you can cope with the worst case. Exactly. Well, this is what I was trying to get to. Yeah. So, uh, and, and in our negotiations, I remember in the past, I think being transparent is so, is so important because laying out to you the options that were there was not a matter of pressure or so. It's just my thinking of, of, where we are, where we are as a team. And today as a team, all points go back to zero. We have a super group of um, individuals and the right amount of resources, but it's not a given that we are winning this championship. And that, that releases pressure, also releases pressure within the team. You're able to start to believe that as well for yourself, yeah? I've always done that. Um, okay. I know you're not sure about that. No, no, but, but that's the way to go. I um, think you need to do this. I think then, first of all, you avoid the sense of entitlement. And we've seen in the past that some people thought they were entitled to win every championship and they became arrogant and eventually failed. Um, that's one thing. And on the other thing, it's a pressure release valve because finishing second or third in a given race or in a championship is not the end of the world. As long as you can say to yourself, you've done the, the best job possible and then let's come back. And anyway, it needs the narrative. The, the underdog becomes the hero, the hero wins, the hero fails, the hero comes back and everybody loves the hero. Final uh, topic would be leadership, because I, th I know that that's your absolute speciality. I think one, one very important thing in Mercedes, before you arrived, everybody was scared to speak up. And you have managed to change that. Yeah. Can you say, and, it, and, and you've always said it's a way of putting people in, sa feel safe yeah. to speak up. That's the key ingredient. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, how you've managed to do that in Team Mercedes to, uh, to grow that culture? I think, first of all, it's important to put an organization in place with, with the people that report to you and that you interact with and that you believe, that you believe in them. You believe in a personality. You can recognize pretty quickly if somebody wants to bullshit you or not. And I think it's that first, the, this instinctive feeling whether, whether somebody is doing a decent job and knows what he's talking about. And once you've put the team together, and that is a process that took a year for me to find out who I, who, who I thought was competent and had the right values, then you need to empower and trust. And, and we have a motto in the team, which is see it, say it, fix it. And that means that you need to be able to speak up. You need to be able to tell your boss, we've made a mistake. Um, and only then, if you have a culture of complete transparency and honesty, only then you can improve as a team. 
you're not hiding anything anymore. You're not playing it conservative in order to just not screw up. I think we need to take risks and we need to incentivize people for taking risks and coming up and come up with innovation. Scrutinize, talk about it, come to a joint decision whether we think it's good or wrong. Um, but that brutal transparency is absolutely crucial in any organization. And how do you uh, lead, how do you give yourself to encourage people owning up for mistakes? People relate very much to stories and images. It's much easier to then understand. And I'm coming with the with the, with the, from the scientific side. And what I'm saying is that when I see conflict um, or fear of speaking up, a typical example would be a, a discussion among two departments in Formula One, which one or a, dif a difference of opinion. And the human brain is wired in a way that if I'm saying something to you that you don't like or you disagree, you're very emotional side of your brain, the amygdala is going to take over and say, I don't like it. And it's going to switch to combat mode. From that moment on, you're not listening to me anymore. You just, you're just thinking about your response. You're just thinking about how to, how to retaliate, how to come back and make your standpoint, um, strong. And, and what you should do is, is be aware of that reaction in your brain and and try to be rational and this sounds now maybe very scientific or bullshit it's presence it's presence in the it's presence it? but there is another rational part in our brain that is the prefrontal cortex and that is the the side of the brain that will say okay why is he having a different opinion and i try to tackle that in a way to approach a different opinion with curiosity and not with combat to say, why is Nico having a different opinion to mine? And then I will... We were always of the same opinion. Most often, just in the contract negotiation, it was different. So why is he having the different opinion? Well, of course, it's his career. He wants to um, have the best possible contract, be sure that he's in the best car. That is your that is your objective. And maybe my objective is not aligned, but I can respect yours because I would do the same. And the moment you're able to respect somebody else's position because of a different agenda... It's absolutely fine. Then you can put it all on the table and say, I know what you mean, but my opinion is another one and we need to find a compromise. And this is something that I very much enjoy to create and help to co-create such a culture in the team. It's very powerful. Also, very often you start a meeting by admitting an own mistake. Yeah, I think when the... Which I think is powerful. When the first of all, meeting culture is very important and there is lots of books about meeting cultures. But as a matter How of... How many have you read? <laughs> A lot of them, really? a lot of them. Yeah, but That's some cool, of them eh? are not realistic. <laughs> they, they, there is a meeting culture. It shouldn't be more than five people in a room um, and uh, um, because nobody will be in the moment. Some of some of you will think about what to eat about in about, uh, dinner. Yeah. Others will check emails or think about the email and two will be present. And you <laughs> never have everybody in the presence. But so Flavio's, uh, Flavio's, uh, Flavio Briatore, previous guest, his way of doing it was hard limit 15 minutes. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> every single meeting. But that is, there is a story to learn in there. It was maybe a bit old style, Jesus Christ. Um, but he has a point. There's a reason why he was successful that he wasn't, he, he obliged everybody to come to the point within 15 minutes. And I think that's a, that's a good strategy. So we, meeting culture for the boss to come into the meeting and, and maybe if there's tension, release the tension a little bit with a stupid joke, um, or admit the, the own mistake allows everybody else to admit the mistake. And I see that in our Monday morning debriefs, whether it's me or some of the other leaders in the organization that would say, okay, agenda point number one, I made a mistake. This is why I could have done taken a different decision. And that is so powerful because everybody else more junior will look up and say, hold on a minute, if he can admit that, 
I can do that. And then we progress as an organization. Okay. One of the most important ingredients to success, isn't it? Because that, that's the only way for people to learn from, fail, from mistakes. Right? Absolutely. If and, you and, fear and that you're well. being fired or you lose your, your position or your standing because of a mistake, that's a big problem. Thank you very much. Just to end then, your target for life. Because, I mean, success we've got, it's winning the next race. But what about for life, uh, for happiness? Because I think in terms of success in Formula One, it's still only the half halfway mark. You want to uh, achieve much, much more. But where's the target for life? What do you, where, how do you see your legacy? Where's the big picture? Where, you, think, where are you going? I think let's start with Formula Are you sure of your way also at the moment? Yeah, I am. I am. Um, but <laughs> even, even if it's so crazy. It's crazy and it is a journey and it's not going to last forever. And I, I'm not even sure that you can win every race or every championship you join. And this is something that I'm conscious about. And I, and I embrace the challenge. For me, it's about enjoying the journey. As long as I can contribute to the team's success and make Mercedes and help the Mercedes brand out there, I will continue to do what I do. If there, I will honestly assess if there is a moment where I either don't enjoy it anymore or I can't contribute in the way I think I, I do, then I will call it a day and will change my role maybe within the team or, or do something else. But the most important for me is um, my marriage. Uh, is the, the, the single most outstanding thing that I, I'm, I'm trying to protect, to have a good relate, good relationships within the family, um, be the best possible dad for my children, um, even though uh, as teenagers they don't always think that I am uh, that I am, but I try to give them a basis for a happy life for themselves, and then think things will fall into place and I'm I'd like to be an investor one day back again and 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 look at the world and look at macro trends and and uh, deploy them in investment strategies that's going to come one day again and become a billionaire well <laughs> I can't really answer to that you know today we're counting in lap time uh, so I'm in very much into lap time KPIs not money KPIs <laughs> Okay, thank you very much for your time. Um, I, ho I really hope you, dear listener, enjoyed it as well. To see this different different side, uh, personal side. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was very, very uh, inspiring. And uh, please subscribe to the podcast, yeah, if it's uh, your first time listening. And let's, uh, yeah, and watch how you do this year again on, in, in Formula One. I'm sure it's going to be an exciting season. Nico, thank you. Thank you for having me on the podcast. I am very excited to follow your second career. You have been as successful as you can be in Formula One. You've become a world champion. You've ticked the box. You've shocked me on a plane journey that it was over. Sorry but about that. It was that. crystal clear that there was no argue, there was no sense to argue with that <laughs> with you about that. Um, like I couldn't tell you at that famous dinner in the plane though, because I would have started crying. I didn't want to. I didn't want to cry. So. No, but you, you said we need to have dinner in the plane. We had dinner, and there was <laughs> for two hours. You sat in front of me, and there was something you, you saw wanted to tension. say. You saw a bit yeah, of tension, but you didn't. It was just on landing <laughs> that you said it. Uh, no, but I'm. I have no doubt about your second career and the things to come. Um, uh, you, you're pushing as hard as you did before as a racing driver. Uh, the podcast is, I guess, just one of the many things you do, and um, and really chapeau how you're doing it. Thank you. Bye-bye, everybody.